Great, so we're going to start by looking at the scriptures. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 12. There's some wrestling, Trev. Hebrews 12. And we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Uh, I'm in the New International Version. That should be what comes up on the screen. It says, it's very, it says uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Some uh, familiar verses to many of us, uh, I think. And uh, I just want to pick up uh, this morning, just that line where it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, verse 2, the pioneer of our faith. Pioneer. Now, I quite often uh, like to look in the dictionary and check that I understand the meaning of words before I preach about them. And uh, I, uh, so I looked up in the dictionary, and pioneer means there's, there's a noun and there's a verb. The, the noun is a person who is among the first to explore or settle a new country or an area, etc. And the verb is to develop or be the first one to use or apply. And then it says a new method, an area of knowledge and activity, etc. And Jesus was the pioneer of our faith. He was the first to do things in a new way. See, the context of Jesus, when Jesus comes, the context is this. If you're not familiar, the Bible is divided into two main um, what are called testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is all about, uh, from creation up, um, Till before Jesus comes, and it's all about the people of Israel. It's all about their journey, the chosen people of God. And then the New Testament is all about what happens when Jesus comes. So Jesus comes at the beginning of the New Testament, and then the first four books are all about Jesus and his life and his teachings. And then we read about the church and everything God does through the church and various letters telling us about Jesus and his grace, and it's amazing. And so the Bible is divided up into these two sections. And Jesus comes 400 years after the last writings of the Old Testament. And he comes to a nation that is living under the old covenant, under the old rules, under the old promises. And he, but they're also a nation that are living under Roman rule. They're a nation who are waiting for a Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament that would come in and fight for them. And they expect Jesus to come in with swords, with an army, and destroy the Roman Empire. But Jesus, who is the, who is the Messiah, he comes in a different way to what they expect. He comes and he presents a gospel that is full of love and full of grace. He comes and he presents a gospel that doesn't abolish, doesn't throw out all the old rules, but he says it actually fulfills them. He comes and he fulfills the old rules and the old law and he brings life to them. See, gospel simply means good news. And the good news is that 
No longer was this gospel, no longer was all these promises just for the people of Israel, just for a select few people, but God was now calling all people to himself. And Jesus went before us to set the example of how to live and how to proclaim this gospel, this good news, how to proclaim the kingdom of God to all around us. He was the first to do it. And we look to his example. Now I want to just sidestep and tell you a quick story that relates to this item here. I don't know if you can see this. Um, this is a Jaffa cake. Jaffa cake, and everyone's hungry now, including me, who's got it sat there for the next half an hour. Um, now, Jaffa cakes were released in 1928, I found out this week. So they're nearly 100 years old. Not that one. Um, <laughs> And um, Jaffa Cakes were released in, by the lovely people at McVitie's in 1928, and they were placed on the shelves. And they, if you've ever been to, into a supermarket, they are basically placed on the biscuit aisle. You've got all your, your biscuits, your rich teas, your digestives, etc. And then you've got Jaffa Cakes sat there. And this was all fine until the 1990s, when the lovely people at HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, decided they weren't happy with this. And they launched a court case against McVitie's about the Jaffa cake. Now, what you need to understand, the context of this is, that in, in, in the groceries, there are two categories. There are essential items. And in your essential items, you've got things like fruit and veg and pasta and bread and that sort of thing. And then you have luxury items, things like chocolates and the things that I eat way too much of. Just managed to turn the mic off by fiddling with the bottom, so I'll leave that alone. And so, biscuits and cakes are both classified as essential items. I knew someone would say amen, and I was pretty sure it would be true. Uh, <laughs> biscuits and cakes are classified as essential items. But when you get some chocolate and you put it on a biscuit, those biscuits are now no longer classified as essential. They are now classified as luxury items. However, put chocolate on a cake, and it is still an essential item. <laughs> now, why is this important? This is important because essential items have no tax on them. Luxury items have tax charged on them. And so if you put chocolate on a biscuit, you take it from a place that doesn't get taxed to a place that does get taxed, and suddenly HMRC are interested. And so you can understand that HMRC might look at the Jaffa cake and think, hang on, you're saying it's a cake, therefore it's an essential item. Therefore there's no tax on it. Therefore we're not making any money. And so they took McVitie's to court. And now listen, I over the last two years have read a lot of gov.uk websites the website, and lots of documents on there around COVID and all that sort of thing. Most of them are complicated and very, very boring. I quite enjoyed reading this one. <laughs> and it explains why the process they went through to determine whether a Jaffa cake was a cake or a biscuit. They didn't look at the name. You can't just put a name on something and it be there. I can't just say, I am Dan Lush, Olympic sprinting champion, and suddenly I am. That doesn't count. 
So they, they looked at that, they looked at the texture, they looked at how it was baked, they looked at everything on it. But eventually it came down to what happens with a Jaffa cake when it goes stale. And a biscuit, I don't know if you're aware of this, if you've left the lid off your biscuit tin for too long, we don't have a biscuit tin in our house because it would never have any biscuits in. Um, but if you leave the lid off your biscuit tin for too long, a biscuit goes soft and squidgy. If you leave a cake out, it goes hard. And that was the difference. And ultimately, that is why they deemed that a Jaffa cake was indeed a cake and could be classed as an essential item. So, I walk into the shop, and you're all sat there thinking, this is all very well and good, Dan, but tax law, why? Um, hopefully, there's a point. And <laughs> so, I walk into the biscuit aisle, I walk in there, and I'm looking at the snacks. And there are two things that I... I look at when I look at a biscuit. I think, first of all, what is it? And secondly, how much is it? And as I've lived in Yorkshire, that one has become more and more valid over the years. And I look at it and I think, well, this one is, I like the look of this, but it's £1.20. And I look at the Jaffa cake and think, it's a pound. I'll buy that. And I take that away. And some might say that the Jaffa cake has an unfair advantage in that. McVitie's can charge less money for it. They can put it on the shelves, surrounded by other biscuits, but they can charge less money, which means that when I go in, I am more inclined to buy a Jaffa cake. And some would say that's unfair. It doesn't come under the same rules. It doesn't come under the same constraints as the other biscuits around it. And you know, sometimes I think we can feel a bit like a biscuit. I'll explain why now. <laughs> I see Trev's getting slightly nervous over here. <laughs> sometimes I think we can feel a bit like a biscuit. I think sometimes we look along and we look at Jesus, who in this example is the cake, and we think, I can't do what he did. That's not fair. The rules don't apply to him because he's God. See, Paul tells us that we are to imitate Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. But I think sometimes we look at Jesus and we look at the Gospels and we look at everything he does and we say, it's not attainable. I can't do that. I'm, I'm constrained by different rules to you. You're God. You came, but yeah, you're God. We can say, that's, there's an unfair advantage there. Now, to be absolutely clear, right now, I believe Jesus was 100% God. When Jesus came, I believe he was 100% God. It says in Isaiah 7, uh, verse 14, Look, the virgin will, become, will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And we read the story when when Joseph and Mary uh, were about to have Jesus, we read that the angel comes and he says, you will call him Emmanuel, fulfilling those scriptures. In Colossians 2 verse 9, it says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And I'm really, I'm really sorry if that upsets the maths geniuses in the room. One of the things that 
Ruth will tell you, one of the things that winds me up on telly is when someone goes, I gave 110%. You didn't. You can't give 110%. But Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. Jesus came, he was born, he lived, he lived a life about 33 years and then he died on a cross. And then three days later, he rose again and then he ascended into heaven. These are facts. They are documented in in the Bible and they are documented in other places as well. These are facts. Jesus came. He was a man. He was 100% man and 100% God. And so you think, well, hang on. When he came, did he do everything he did because he was God? Well, no. Let's read this. Philippians 2. If you want to turn to it. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8. I'm in the New Living Translation for this. It says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. He gave up his divine privileges. The English Standard Version phrases it like this. It says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself. Jesus, when he came, he laid down his rights. He laid down all his power so that he could dwell among men, so that he could live like us, and so that he could show us how to live. And this is how we can imitate him. It is possible. He didn't have some unfair advantage. He lived as a man. He didn't live as a god. He didn't live as a, as a superhero with powers he didn't i always think of aladdin and you know the genie he didn't live as the as the genie you know phenomenal cosmic power he didn't live like that he lived as a simple man and when i understand this and when i read the gospels and i understand this and as i said my head does not understand but my heart does (laughs) my head can't 100 man 100 god I, i don't understand how all that works god But I know in my heart that Jesus came and he lived as a man. And when I understand this and I grab hold of this, then I can read the four Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. And I understand that he was 100% man. I see an example of someone that I can follow and that I can imitate. See, I see a man who enjoyed a good party. We read about the wedding in Cana. We read about numerous times where he ate with people and shared fellowship with people. I see a man who shared life with people, walking along the road, talking to people, chatting, encouraging, blessing people. I see a man who had close relationships. We read about the one, the three, the twelve, the more. He had close relationships. And all the challenges that go with that, all those different people and character types that were in those 12 disciples, Jesus 
dealt with that and dealt with all the frustrations. We read of his frustrations and his disappointments sometimes with the disciples when they don't get something he said or understand or receive things. I see a man that was betrayed and went through the hurt of betrayal by those closest to him. I see a man that was misunderstood by so many and had to go through all the emotions that go through being misunderstood. I see a man that wept when his friend Lazarus died. I see a man that was tempted in the desert. You know, when, when you read the story of Jesus going into the desert for 40 days and you understand he was a man, you understand he was hungry. It's really easy to read that scripture and think, well, it's okay, Jesus was God. He went into the desert for 40 days. He spent time. But no, Jesus was man. And if you fast for 40 days, I'm told you get hungry. I've never made it to 40 days. I've never tried to get to 40 days. But I, I fasted for one, two, three days. And you get hungry. And Jesus, after 40 days, will have been hungry. And he was tempted in that place. I see a man that got angry with injustice, as Sarah was sharing last week. I see a man that is filled with compassion for the hungry and the hurting. I see a man that preached good news to the poor. I see a man that wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, that knew the hurt and the pain that was coming and just wrestled with it and wept and cried out to God and said, if you can take this off me, please. He wrestled with that in the Garden of Gethsemane with what he was called to do. And I see a man that died a hugely painful and humiliating death so that others can live. And when I see that, and when I see those things, I realize he has been there. You know, Jesus may not have had my exact circumstances. Jesus wasn't made redundant in 2008 from a a sound engineering company. No, but he knew what it was to be let down by people. Jesus has been there. He's been through all the emotions, all the struggles and all the temptations. It says... In Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, This high priest of ours, that's Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And so when I look at Jesus, I see that. And I wonder, well, how did he do it? How did he live a life like that? And as I look, I see two things. I see a man that was in full communion with the Father. And I see a man that was moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we read Jesus, and we don't have time to look at it this morning, but when we look at Jesus' baptism, it says in, in Matthew 3, verse 17, it says, A voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Before anything happened, before Jesus had done anything, he had a relationship with his Father. And then we read just a few verses later, Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. 
And I believe these, this is the key for us. If we want to live and imitate Jesus, we need to live in communion with the Father. And we need to leave, live led by the Holy Spirit. We can do everything that Jesus did. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, we will do more than he did. But we have to follow every example he gave us, not just the exciting stuff. You know, because I think we spend time going, oh, I just want to pray for people and see them healed, but we don't want to do some of the other stuff that we see Jesus doing. And I don't have time, as I said this morning, to go into full details, but here are some of the things Jesus did to be in full communion with the Godhead, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He spent time fasting. He spent time studying the scriptures. He spent time in silence and solitude. He spent time in community. He practiced Sabbath and he lived a simple life. He spent time at the temple worshipping with others and he spent time on the mountaintop praying. Jesus spent 30 years preparing himself for three years of ministry. He went where the Holy Spirit moved him to go, not just where society or his friends told him to go. He lived a life of obedience and worship. This is how he did it. This is how he lived his life. And so the question for us this morning is, how do we want to live our lives? Do we want to do the things that Jesus did? Do we want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? In Huddersfield as it is in heaven? And if our answer to this question is yes, then it's not enough to long for the outworkings of what Jesus did. We have to give ourselves to the inworkings, the things that bring us closer to relationship with him. It's what John Mark Comer, for those of you who've read any of his stuff, what he refers to as practicing the way of apprenticeship to Jesus. You know, it will require sacrifice. We can't just carry on with our day-to-day lives like everyone else and expect those outcomes It will require sacrifice and it will require change. But I believe it's what we as the Church of Jesus Christ are called to. Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer, wrote this on his Instagram feed this week. It's part of a longer article. I encourage you to go and read it. But this is what he wrote. The world needs a church in every community that does the work of Jesus, looks and sounds like Jesus, and models true family for those who feel lonely and lost. I believe it is doable. If Jesus did it, so can I. And so, we come back to our Jaffa cake. You see, actually, like the Jaffa cake, we do have an advantage over those around us. Like Jesus, we too can live in relationship with the Father and we too can move in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this morning, we have bought 150 Jaffa cakes. It's one of the most fun things I've asked Denise to order. In fact, we ordered 172, but um, it was because it was cheaper, wasn't it, Dan? Um, But some of them may have 
been absorbed by the team during coffee morning on, on Friday. But we've got 150 Jaffa cakes. And so as you have your tea and your coffee this morning, take one. Enjoy it. I apologize if you don't like Jaffa cakes, but it would completely ruin my point if I bought other biscuits. <laughs> and know that everything available to Jesus is available to you. Everything he did when he walked on this earth is available to you. You can literally this morning have your cake and eat it. Thank you. And so, just to bring it back, Paul, do you want to come up? Paul's just going to play um, and then lead us in a song. And as he does this, let's take a moment to consider Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. And let's just take a moment, first of all, I think sometimes we just rush on with these things and we we just assume, but let's take a moment, first of all, to consider whether we truly do want to live in his ways. Because that's important. That we first of all make that decision, yes, I truly want to live for you and do what you did. And then I want to encourage you. Let's ask God what he's calling us to, to deepen our relationship with the Father and to move more in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, do we need to recommit to something? Do we need to recommit to meeting with people? Do we need to recommit to reading our Bibles? Do we need to re- Yeah, whatever it is. Do we need to change some of our practices, some of our habits? You know, just for me, over the last few months, God's really been calling me again to back to his word to read his word and so every day I'm, I'm trying to find time just to sit and read his word every day and it's transformative when you do that when you make that moment just to come back and I'm still I'm not standing here as a finished article I'm standing here as, some, as a, someone who's on this journey with you but maybe there's practices we need to change what do we need to do to retune our spiritual ears to hear God, to move in relationship with him. Paul, do you want to start playing? I'm just going to read that Hebrew scripture that I read, but this time from the message. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get ready what he is so ready to give. Let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Jesus, thank you that you showed us a way. You didn't come in a, in just like, and do something that we couldn't live up to, but you set an example that we could go after. You showed what a life lived in relationship with your Father in communion with the Holy Spirit could do. And so, Lord God, this morning we commit 
to you. And we commit to that relationship, knowing that as we draw near to you, as we draw near to your throne, as we spend time in the in stillness in that storm, Lord, as we spend time building that relationship with you and with your Father, that you're strengthening us to go and move, to go and extend your kingdom in this earth. Thank you for your example, Jesus. Amen.